blocking. Deep pattern downfield. Touchdown, Miami. What a throw. Devontae Parker. Holy smokes. What a drive. What is up, Dolphins, and welcome to the Drive Time Podcast, part of the Miami Dolphins Podcast Network, covering your team, your Miami Dolphins. How's it going, everybody? I am your host, Travis Wingfield, and as always, I am here to bring you your daily dose of Miami Dolphins football. And on today's show, it's part three of the training camp preview series as we stop by the wide receivers room to detail one of the deepest position groups on the team, in my opinion, with an infusion of speed and explosiveness this offseason. Plus, I did it. I ranked every I think you should leave sketch from the wildly popular second season of the Netflix show, 98% on Rotten Tomatoes. We'll close out this podcast with some TV talk, but first, we got receivers to talk to, and there are a bunch of them on this roster. Let's go ahead and jump right in. That's another Miami Dolphins So this receiver's room was a point of emphasis in the offseason. Miami only lost one player from the receiver's room. Isaiah Ford was a departure with four incoming players in Will Fuller, Robert Foster, Jalen Waddell, and Kai Loxley. And the first thing I wanted to look at was a question I had for Coach Grizzard back, I think it was in May, maybe early May. I can't remember the exact date. But there was a quote from a question I asked him about Something that receivers talked about last year in the Chan Gailey system, how there was a little bit more freedom in the routes compared to other offenses that players have played in with regards to, I need you at this spot at this time. I don't really care how you get there in terms of the footwork, the steps you take, because oftentimes that's kind of how timing and rhythm is synced up in a passing game. You want to have the quarterback has his three-step drop timing, his five-step drop timing, his quick, you know, get the ball out of the hands quickly timing. And then you have the receivers that take, you know, maybe it's two or three steps before they break into the slant or into the out or into the curl, whatever it might be. It's all timed up and synced up. That's why, you know, professional football is such a marvel to watch because go watch a high school game. That stuff is, you know, it's night and day, the difference you see there. So part of the NFL is, is the beauty of it is the fact that these guys are so precise in their timing. And the question I had for coach Grizzard was how much of that changes this year and how much do you coach that in the receiver's room? And he said, there's pretty good carryover when it comes to having that freedom to win the route, but also having the same timing and tempo and sense of urgency that we know the timing of the play. We've got to get open and cannot take too long. It just really is being on the same page with the quarterbacks and seeing it through the same lens. So kind of the idea there of repping and practice and getting this stuff down. I think that right there shows you some of the value of having this full complement of an offseason for the Miami Dolphins with this young team that was the second youngest team in the National Football League last year. For a lot of the season, they were the youngest team until some injuries or guys going on IR changed that across the league. But the the main idea was that this team was so young and to get that offseason work together with a room that has plenty of incumbents but also has some newcomers, I think that can prove valuable this season, especially as the year goes along. The second thing I wanted to look at with regards to this room and how it's constructed is an argument that I've seen made often on the Move the Sticks podcast and this idea of attacking your receiver's room kind of like you would a basketball lineup in in the sense that, and maybe this isn't so true today where everybody can shoot 30-foot jumpers and and knock those down and maybe dumping the ball into the post is a bit of a thing of the past, but having your variety on the floor 
could be viewed as a similar translation or idea or theory, whatever you want to call it, at the receiver position. So I'm kind of thinking about how would I describe these receivers in terms of that basketball analogy. And I'm kind of looking at it like this, like you've got so many options for all five positions on the field. Like I put Will Fuller as my point guard because he's an accomplished receiver in the NFL, 27 years old. He's shown growth every single step of the way. His route running continues to get better. He has the vertical threat, but he also can turn guys around in the short area. Just go back and watch the Thanksgiving game last year against the Lions with the Houston Texans. He was creating three, four, five yards of separation with relative ease, or not relative ease, but with regularity. I put Jalen Waddle as my two guard because, I mean, this guy can do just about anything you want him to, but we're going to use him to free him up and get him shots and, you know, use jet motion, get him in the backfield, whatever it might be. You have so many options with him that I think that he puts that role of we can create certain plays and certain ways to get him the football on top of the idea that he can do a lot of the things we talked about with Will Fuller in terms of creating separation as a pure route runner, vertically intermediate and the short area as well. I was trying to decide between who was the small forward and power forward between Devontae Parker and Preston Williams. And I think I'm going with Preston as my small forward because he's got plenty of wiggle and shake at the top of the route as he kind of, one thing you want to watch for these guys is you want every route to look the same. And one way you can do that is to sink the hips into the route so that you're not giving away the route with your body language or your footwork or how you set the route up. If you can sink your hips, that allows you to stay within the the framework of your route and make everything look the same. So with Preston, he's got an ability to do that. And he has going back to Colorado State. I think it's a big reason why he's had such big training camps in the one big preseason and then production when he's been on the field the last couple of years because he does have that vertical skill set. He has the height to challenge cornerbacks on back shoulder throws or vertical throws, but also when you can do that and snap things off and come back to the quarterback and run horizontal, that's a little bit more of that three position on the basketball court, the small forward, where Devontae Parker, I'm going to put him out there and we'll talk about why here in terms of the stats that prove this out. I'm going to put him in the post and power forward him and just throw him contested balls and let him go up over people and draw fouls as it were, you know, pass interference or a foul, you know, hack a shack type of basketball and just body guys and pull the ball in on those contested catches, be my red zone guy, my touchdown maker. He's been doing that the last couple of years here in Miami. And then I don't think there's a great center option. And again, this kind of goes back to the idea that the center is maybe a little bit dead in the NBA as far as real true impact players. But I think the easy comparison here is Mike Gesicki, even though I know he's a tight end, but he plays the majority of his reps in the slot. So, you know, a receiver slash tight end, a move piece that can do a lot for you. So we'll go with him there. Then I've got backcourt options a plenty. I mean, Lynn Bowden, Albert Wilson, Jakeem Grant, Malcolm Perry, all these guys can do the horizontal stuff, the drag routes. They can do hookups. They can run screens. You can you can put these guys in the backfield. All of these guys have run plays from the backfield either in their college or pro career. Then as my kind of front court off, you know, behind Parker and Williams and Mike I've got Robert Foster, Mac Hollins, Kirk Merritt, Alan Hearns, and Kai Loxley. I mean, the depth there, it just, it goes on and on and on and on. You've got almost these line changes you can run with this group. It's evenly balanced. It's evenly complimentary. I am just such a fan of how this room was constructed in the offseason. I remember at the start of free agency, there was 
you know, so many name brands on the market that folks were pointing to. And that was something we talked about for months on the podcast, on Twitter and uh, among Dolphins fans yourselves, like, you know, independent of my content, you know, the likes of Juju Smith-Schuster, who goes back to Pittsburgh or Kenny Galladay, who winds up on a huge contract with the Giants, who, you know, I like Kenny Galladay, but I think his game was a bit redundant to what the Dolphins had here. So it's not like adding him makes you not a better team. He certainly would, but I think you look for more complementary skill sets to what you have. And the two names I liked in that area were Will Fuller and T.Y. Hilton of the Colts, who then, of course, re-signed back to the Colts late in the free agent process. I also love me some Curtis Samuel, who went off the board pretty quickly in free agency, if I recall correctly, to the Washington football team. Man, he and, uh, why am I forgetting his name all of a sudden? Terry McLaurin in Washington is a fun duo. Can't wait to watch those guys get after it. We'll have the NFC East preview on a podcast coming up here in the coming weeks. But getting Will Fuller was such a perfect fit for what I thought the room needed heading into the offseason. Then you come back and get the absolute, again, in my opinion, perfect fit for what the room was missing with Jalen Waddell. And by now, you know that I think the world of this guy as a prospect, I just love seeing position groups have certain needs. You know, it's not just put receiver X in that position. Like you see it in mock drafts, for instance, like, well, team X needs a receiver. The third receiver in the draft is on the board right here. Let's go ahead and assign him. But if he's not a fit for your system, or if he's not going to upend a veteran on, in terms of what he does well with his skill set then you're being redundant. And so I thought the way they went after this with having certain needs in the front office and the coaching staff, identifying those needs and investing in that particular need, not just in addressing it, but investing in it. And we saw it last year with the offensive line where you pair draft picks with free agent signings, giving you a good balance of veteran and young players with obviously Eric Flowers and Ted Karras in free agency. And then you get Austin Jackson, Robert Hunt, and Solomon Kinley in the draft. And now you come back this year and you identify the receiver position. And we'll talk about this with Coach Flores and his comments this offseason as well. And you address it with Will Fuller and Robert Foster and you draft Jalen Waddell. All three of those guys have clocked sub 440s at one point or another in their career. And not to mention getting back Albert Wilson, another sub 4-4 guy, and Alan Hearns, a guy that has eaten up the field in the middle of the field from that slot position, as well as played outside in his career. Both those guys back in after opting out in 2020. So the approach of getting balanced at this position with size and speed, it also allows you to be adaptable. And we talked about this on the Running Back Podcast with how all of those guys at their very best can be fungible across different systems. You know, zone, man, outside, inside. We talked about that on the Wednesday podcast. Different facets of the game, running game, passing game, pass blocking, special teams. And I see a lot of the same things here at the receiver position. We talked about it in that basketball lineup breakdown. You have seemingly infinite permutations where you can get whichever skill sets you need on the field for that particular down or that series or that quarter or that game, whatever it might be. And last year, attrition was a problem late in the year. It got to a point where you're trying to survive losses of Preston Williams, of Albert Wilson and Alan Hearns from opting out in the beginning part of the year. You know, right before training camp gets gets going, you're kind of limited in your options as far as how you can address the position with free agency and the draft both bygone. 
Devontae Parker and Jakeem Grant take late season injuries and have to miss some time in game and also miss games at the end of the year. Not to mention Mike Gesicki goes down late in that Patriots game too. So really a lot of your top receiving options in terms of targets, receptions, yards, touchdowns, however you want to play it, were not available to you late in the year. So now I think you feel a lot better about being protected against something like that happening again. It's kind of been a focal point of the offseason to build up every position group, not just for competition, but to give yourself that depth so that you can survive the attrition that is the National Football League. And that also extends into the way you game plan. You know, we talk about being interchangeable on this podcast. We talk to the coaching staff about it. We talk to the players about it. It's a organizational philosophy to have people that can do multiple things. And that goes for the entire, you know, the entire organization, a podcaster like me, I'm learning about SEO, for instance, and and working with Emily Latham, our great, great web uh, developer, designer, the one that helps me the most on the back end design with the website stuff. We have people that are multifaceted and that is an extension of Brian Flores and his message and his team and being interchangeable in the sense that you can be a team that does X primarily one week and then pivots to Y the following week. For instance, when they were down bodies late in the season, you call upon a Mac Hollins who plays a career high 69 snaps on offense. And all they do is roll up 250 rushing yards after having a prior season high of 138 yards, almost doubled the rushing total of this previous season high. And you go watch that tape Watch Matt Collins, number 86, blocking in the running game. He is wiping guys out. He's holding up multiple guys to the point. He's sealing edges. He's downfield. Anytime you get a big run, there's going to be a downfield block by a wide receiver, and 86 was hitting him on that day. You stack this group up against the rest of the league. I mean, Pro Football Focus has been doing uh, position-by-position rankings across the league, and they ranked the Dolphins receiver room ninth. And it seems like it's been since the... Dan Marino days, since you could say that about the Miami pass catchers, that they'd be viewed in that regard. Chambers, Booker, and McMichael, maybe. I know McMichael's a tight end, but back then, you know, it was a different league. You played a lot of 21 personnel with two backs, Rob Conrad and Lusaka Polite types in the league. Uh, Irving Fryer, OJ McDuffie, and Mark Ingram in the mid-90s, maybe. And then for sure before that, like definitely the, the Marx brothers held up that end of the bargain. But I asked Brian Flores about, you know, going back to the idea of the emphasis on the passing game and playmakers. He talked about post-draft. I asked him because Chris Greer had said pre-draft that we do want to add playmakers, both of the offensive and defensive side of the football. And then after Javon Holland, the safety was drafted in the second round out of Oregon, I had a chance to ask coach, you know, you talk about addressing playmakers on both sides of the ball. Can you kind of speak more to that? And he he said this, a verbatim quote, it's a passing league. I think we all know that. You need to be able to defend the pass. You have to, you've got to defend the run also. But if you just look at the percentages and strictly the numbers, it's a passing league. In my opinion, and Chris Greer and I have had many discussions about this, we want to be able to defend the deep part of the field and limit explosive plays. And a quick aside right here, GA coach Gerald Alexander has talked multiple times last season, and I'm sure we'll hear it this year about how mistakes in the secondary lead to touchdowns. That's where you cannot make your communication errors in the secondary. So limiting explosive plays, part of that is athletic ability on the back end, but also communicating. And so back to Brian Flores' quote here, in order to do that, to limit explosive plays, 
The guys who are back there are the defensive backs. I think Chris puts an emphasis on that with the scouts, and we talk about the back end constantly. We feel it's important. We feel like it's all important. I hate to kind of talk about one thing because every position from the nose tackle to the three technique to the linebacker, it all plays as one. But at the end of the day, there's nothing a nose tackle can do about a 50-yard ball. We put an emphasis on that. The next thing we have to do is get them coached up. It's one thing to add players. It's another thing to get them coached up and get them all on the same page so we can try to defend these offenses that are very good in this league. So that point kind of evolved into a point about the defense, which is what I asked coach. So I appreciate him, you know, answering the question that I asked, but I thought that was relevant to the point about the offense. And you talk about limiting explosive plays and defending the deep part of the field. Well, on offense, which free agent threatens the deep part of the field more than Will Fuller. There wasn't one in the national football. League. We'll talk about that here in just one second. Which player in the draft threatened the deep part of the field more than Jalen Waddell? There wasn't one. We'll talk about that here in just one second. And you talk about making an emphasis on the playmakers. I just got the Warren Sharp season preview magazine. He does great work. He does so many models and analytics and in-depth uh, advanced metrics that give you an idea and a feel for what a team is and what they can be. And it's it's just a unique look at the game and by the numbers. And I think it's a really good balance to what you see on film. You use both those things to kind of come to a final conclusion. But in that, he has positional salary rankings in terms of what teams allocate their cash towards which position. And the number one team in the league as far as receiver payroll and defensive back payroll, both of those belong to the Miami Dolphins. So they talk about it, they have a vision, they approach it, they attack it. And they are, I mean, that's that's my favorite part about this Dolphins iteration under this current regime is they talk about things they want to do and they go out and do it. Like you, you don't have to look for between the lines. They, they're they're going to do what they say they're going to do. That's their vision. That's their belief. And it's been fun to watch it come together. So this group, you know, creating conflict. I just, I don't know how you avoid the conflict that this team can present because you play man coverage with all that speed we talked about. The vertical and horizontal stretching element is going to just open up space for everybody, not just the speed guys, but the big guys that create space in the middle. And you get those guys one-on-one opportunities like a Mike Gesicki or a Devontae Parker or Preston Williams and down the list, if those guys get one-on-one, that's where they excel in bodying guys up and making those contested catches. You play too high defense, that creates chances for the running game. You get a two-way go from the slot where the receiver can can go inside, can go outside. That forces you to play coverage unless you want to rely on your off safety or maybe a nickel cornerback playing off coverage to be responsible for the possibility of this, where Jalen Waddle or Will Fuller is lined up on you, you have a 10-yard cushion, and you're the only man in the deep part of the field. So you have to be worried about him stepping to the corner and then crossing face back to the post or doing the opposite. There's a great clip of Jalen Waddle against Missouri this past season late in the game where he does just that. The, the nickel cornerback blitzes, the safety rolls over to cap and kind of replace that cornerback. And Waddle, he gives him no chance. He runs straight at him with that 4-3 speed or sub 4-3 speed really. And the safety flips his hips to the corner. He runs to the post and creates like five yards of separation. The ball didn't find him. But that's besides the point, you know, process over results. So I look at the the offense and the conflict it can create. That's the most exciting part about this to me. Conflict, conflict, conflict. And finally, I also think you have the potential to maybe add to future capital with this room because there's what? Double digit capable receivers in this room that we know of. That's before we get a chance to see some of these undrafted guys or players that haven't had NFL experience, like a Kirk Merritt, for instance. We'll see what is, what can he bring to the table? You can't keep them all. You can't keep 10 receivers. So can you possibly 
use that to your advantage if maybe someone goes down in camp on some on some other team that needs a receiver. Maybe you do that that way. This receiver's room could be ultimately the gift that keeps on giving to these Miami Dolphins. So let's go ahead and get to the written piece up on MiamiDolphins.com, taking a look at every position here, heading into training camp, an 11-part series. We're going to be with you guys in the podcast here up until the opening day of camp, and then we're going to break down all the action, 90-player evaluations throughout the course of the month of August and preseason games and training camp practices. I've said it before, I'll say it again. It's my favorite football to watch because... You're not stressing out about the results. You just get to sit there and enjoy it and do the evaluation and kind of put your own knowledge of the game to the test. So check it out, MiamiDolphins.com. Training camp previews are live up on the website. And also, while you have a moment, the only thing we ask from you from this podcast, we give you the podcast ad-free, there's no charge, is to go leave us a rating and a review and subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcast. So we talked about the additions to the receiver room, Will Fuller, Jalen Waddle, Robert Foster, and Kai Loxley, and Isaiah Ford was the lone departure from last year's group. The coach of this group is Josh Grizzard. He enters his second season as Dolphins receivers coach. It's his fifth year with Miami. He served previously as a quality control, offensive quality control coach, my apologies, as well as an assistant receivers coach to Carl Durrell, who of course got the head coaching job in the Pac-12 a couple years back. He played his college ball, Grizzard did, at Yale before making the jump to student assistant for one season prior to a three-year stint at Duke as a graduate slash or graduate assistant, a GA slash quality control coach. And when you look at Coach's room as a whole, we talked about this and their ability to make contested catches last year, and we talked about this in the quarterback podcast. Tua Tungavailoa's 47.5% completion rate on tight window throws, which is when there's a receiver or a defensive back rather within one yard of the receiver, was tops in the NFL. And that's, you know, a two person stat right there the receiver and the quarterbacks to make the catches on those good throws in those windows. Devontae Parker had his second best season as a pro last year as far as some of the statistical categories go receptions, yards, touchdowns, and some others. Preston Williams, I thought, developed a good rapport with the young quarterback early on in that Arizona game. Had like four catches for 60 yards and a touchdown in the first half of that game. And then again, to complement the size and the strength of the incumbents, Miami goes in search of speed this offseason, and they found it. Will Fuller in 53 catches, 879 yards, and eight touchdowns. Robert Foster, again, one of these sub-4-4 guys. He had a big rookie season, has not matched it in the last two seasons, but he comes here to Miami looking to do that, but also has some big contributions in his career as a special teamer. Albert Wilson, as well as Alan Hearns, back off of the uh, opt-out list from last year. The sixth overall draft pick in Jalen Waddle, who caught 591 receiving yards and four touchdowns in five games last year at Alabama. And then we talked about the depth of the room and how the goal of the offseason from Coach Flores and from uh, Chris Greer was to breed competition in every room. Talked about Mac Hollins notching his first touchdown as a Dolphin last year, the big touchdown catch against the Cardinals. Jakeem Grant earning all pro honors as a return man. Lynn Bowden and Malcolm Perry proving really difficult to tackle after the catch. And then, of course, Alan Hearns, the other opt-out from last season. Kirk Merritt spent all but one game on the practice squad during his rookie year. And then Kai Loxley looks to make the switch from collegiate quarterback to professional wide receiver. Easy for me to say. We start here in order of jersey number with Albert Wilson. He's entering his seventh season out of Georgia State, 29 years old on opening day. Wearing number two this year, so keep an eye on that at training camp. Number two is Albert Wilson. And I think all of us look back as far as Dolphins fans go 
at Albert Wilson against the Chicago Bears in 2018. He had two catches in the fourth quarter that totaled 118 yards and combined on those 118 yards, 110 of those came after the catch on long touchdown catch and runs through a tired Chicago Bears defense. Kind of a a breakthrough campaign for Wilson that year before prematurely ending that season with an injury the following game against the Lions, where once again, he caught the ball and was off to the races and someone tripped him up. I think if he doesn't get tripped up on that play, he might have damn well scored again. So that was kind of a setback in his career, but that injury, he, he missed some time early in 2019 and came back towards the end of the season and he looked like himself again. He was slipping tackles every single week. The final three games of the year, he had 17 catches for a buck 97, and he broke seven tackles in those three games with 110 of his 197 yards coming after the catch. And come training camp, he will be 33 months removed from that injury. So I'm excited to see what he looks like out there on the practice field. Will Fuller, number three, he has five years of NFL experience out of Notre Dame, 27 years old, kind of hitting that prime age. And we saw that last season. And he stepped into that number one role last year with the Texans after DeAndre Hopkins went to Arizona. And boy, he did not disappoint. He led the NFL in yards per target at 11.7. And he set career highs in receptions, receiving yards and touchdowns. And I thought this stat was interesting. Average depth of target was 13.3 for Will Fuller. That was the 24th highest among receivers who had at least 40 targets last year. And he still caught over 70% of those targets. Only one other receiver with a average depth of target of 13 yards or better caught better than 70% of their passes. That was Cleveland's Rashard Higgins at 75.4%. That's from Pro Football Focus. So he can get vertical and give you a high catch rate. So where you're, you kind of get weary about attacking vertically is the low percentage throws. You get yourself in second down and long. But with Will Fuller, you don't run that risk as much because he catches most of the balls that are thrown to him 70% of the time. He also graded among the top of the receiver class in terms of Matt Harmon's reception perception data for last season. We did a podcast with Matt previewing the receiver draft class this year. We talked a lot about Jalen Waddle, but Wes talked a lot about Will Fuller. If you have not heard that, I believe it was in late April, right before the draft. Go back and check that podcast out. But Fuller posted better than league average success rates on every single route charted besides one, the out route. He was just below league average in that one as far as Matt Harmon's charting went. And he defeated press coverage at a clip of 74.2%. That was in the top 80 percentile of the National Football League. Will Fuller... There are just so many stats that that encourage you about what his production has been in his career. Last year, in, in the 11 games he played, he was on the field for 82% of the offensive snaps on eight of those occasions. So a full-time player last year to the max. Uh, 23.9% of his snaps in the slot last year. The 4.3240 yard dash gives you the flexibility to do multiple things as well. But the catching the deep ball, catching passes underneath, and taking him to the house, 16.6 yards per catch last season, 2.28 yards per route run. That was 11th in the National Football League. And Texans quarterbacks had a 132.5 passer rating when targeting Fuller last season. He is a big play waiting to happen and a lot of fun to watch play football. Up next here on our list is Lynn Bowden Jr., number six now. Another jersey number change. One of the four Dolphins receivers wearing single digits are going to have Wilson in two, Fuller in three, Bowden in six, and Alan Hearns in eight. So try to keep up on that. At training camp, when we see you out there in a couple of weeks, number six, one season NFL experience out of Kentucky. He'll be 23 years old on opening day. And his skills are, I think, best explained by his collegiate accomplishments because he was a receiver 
And, you know, this isn't the Ryan Tannehill thing where you, you heard every single week, this guy was a former receiver in college. No, it was like Tannehill where he was a receiver who moved to quarterback because his team needed him in that role. And he did that. He entered that season on the Bolitnikoff Award watch list for the nation's top receiver. And all he does is go on to play quarterback that season after the first and second string quarterbacks go down to injury. And he sets a record for most rushing yards in a game by an SEC quarterback. Beat Tim Tebow's record and went bananas in their bowl game for a bunch of yards and touchdowns as well. And he got here last year a week before the season opener in that trade with Las Vegas. And you saw his playing time increase as the year went along. He was targeted just twice through the first 12 weeks of the season, but he saw at least four targets in four of the last five games. During that final month, he caught 27 passes for 212 yards, and he broke at least one tackle in every single game. He is slippery with the ball in his hands. Number eight, Alan Hearns. Six years NFL experience out of Miami. He'll be 29 on opening day. He had that contract extension back in 2019, which just through the pandemic, through it all, seems like so long ago. But he did that before the Week 10 game in 2019. After the extension, he finished the year with 19 catches, 246 yards, and a touchdown, which was good for 8.79 yards per target and a 68.1% catch rate. So he he did a lot of work inside, outside. He caught some tough contested balls in the middle of the field. He brings you some value in that way. Up next is number 10, Malcolm Perry, the second-year player out of Navy. He'll be 24 years old come opening day, a versatile offensive weapon. We saw him do kind of what he did in college in terms of playing multiple positions, both on offense and, and special teams. He caught nine passes on 13 targets for 92 yards and a touchdown. He also carried the ball three times for five yards and returned a punt for 12 yards. So Malcolm Perry, kind of a jack-of-all-trades in this receiver's room. Devontae Parker, number 11. That hasn't changed. Six seasons as a pro out of Louisville, 28 years. Years old on opening day. And this guy has mastered the craft of high point in the football. I talked about this after 2019, how it seems like it seems like those high point catches are just from the casual eye or maybe the untrained eye. It looks like there might be like some luck involved. Like you just go up and you hope you get your hands on it, but you watch the way Devante does it. He's so good at manipulating what the defender can do in terms of kind of putting his body into the defender and kind of hanging up in the air and using those long arms and strong hands to pluck the ball because the defensive back can't get around him because he's kind of blocked him out or shielded him out. And I think that's the most impressive part of Devontae Parker's game. But he also moonlights, and this is kind of an unknown fact about Devontae Parker, I think. He plays a lot inside too. He can win from the slot on slants and outs and flats and some of that fun stuff you do from that position. He's capable of playing every position at the receiver spot. Strong hands, the top shelf leaping ability, exceptional body control, 43 contested catches over a two-year period. That's best in the National Football League and a very valuable asset for a young quarterback. He had the 1,202 yards back in 2019, and that was despite ranking in the bottom five in the NFL from Sports Info Solutions in terms of catchable targets. He was also 12th that year in dot at 14.4 yards average depth of target. So pulling down the football on low percentage throws was Devontae Parker's game. Robert Foster, number 16, three seasons NFL experience. He comes out of Alabama as well, 27 years old on opening day. And another one of these guys that has a blend of size and speed at six foot two with a 4-4-1 40-yard dash. And he averaged 20.1 yards per catch as a rookie. And that was his most productive campaign when he caught 27 passes for 541 yards and three touchdowns, 20 first downs, 
and he did that at 12.3 yards per target. And again, this guy can get it done on special teams. Jalen Waddle, number 17, a rookie out of Alabama, will be 22 years old come opening day. And he was the most explosive player in college football, according to GPS tracking in terms of his speed and change of direction and all the stuff that tracks. Instant offense, caught 21 of 26 deep targets last year. That's passes thrown 20 or more yards. Caught 21 out of 26. That's like that's like screen numbers right there. It's ridiculous. And he averaged 22.3 yards per catch, 19.2 yards per target that final year there at Alabama. And he also averaged 19.3 yards per punt return with two touchdowns on 38 chances in his career. He averaged 123.8 yards per game out of the slot that led college football by a country mile. And he also finished sixth in college football with an average of 10.1 yards after the catch last season. We keep on rolling along here with number 18, Preston Williams, two years experience out of Colorado State. He'll be 24 years old on opening day, and you combine his two seasons together. He got injured after his eighth game both seasons, and of course played that Cardinals game through the first half, so seven and a half games really, but through 16 games in two seasons, 50 catches, 716 yards, and seven touchdowns. I mean, you give me a UDFA in, in one season, we'll take that. Two years is even pretty good too for a guy that you know, has the low percentage chance of making a roster like a UDFA typically does, but he burst onto the scene with a great training camp into the preseason and then produced on the field on Sundays when it counted. Average depth of target was 14.8 last year. His average reception was 14.3 yards. So this guy, again, vertical skill set, but also enough to win underneath. Number 19, Jakeem Grant, five years NFL experience out of Texas Tech. He'll be 28 years old come opening day. And his speed and explosiveness makes for some of the more intriguing and white knuckle plays on the NFL landscape. And especially at training camp, he is so much fun to watch practice. He broke franchise records last year for both the longest punt return at 88 yards and most punt return touchdowns in franchise history with three. And when he scored from his own 12-yard line in that 28 or 28-17 win over the Rams. He also has two kickoff return touchdowns, giving him the franchise record for most special team scores. But he also notched 10.3 yards per target last year. That was the best on the Dolphins team. And he averages 6.4 yards after the catch on 89 career receptions. We got a few more to get to here. Kirk Merritt, number 83, last year was his first out of Arkansas State, a 24-year-old player who started his career at Oregon, transferred to Arkansas State where he caught... Uh, 19 touchdowns and 1,872 receiving yards in two seasons. I also thought he was really looking sharp out there in OTAs this past summer. Mac Hollins, number 86, four years experience out of North Carolina, 27 years old on opening day. And again, carving out a real nice role for himself in the NFL as a key special teams contributor, but also his blocking work in the running game. He came on late last year and had 16 catches on 25 targets for 176 yards and that big touchdown against the Arizona Cardinals. We talked about his work in the running game. He had a huge block on that 58-yard Miles Gaskin touchdown in Las Vegas and had so many big blocks on Miami's 250-yard rushing day against the New England Patriots. Kai Loxley, number 87, a rookie out of Texas, El Paso, 24 years old on opening day. He was a dual threat quarterback at UTEP, had 237 rushing attempts and 350 passes in college, 20 total touchdowns, 11 of those on the ground. So he's a little bit uh, tough to tackle. Like so many of these guys on this roster can make plays 
after the reception. So that's your Dolphins receivers room. That's the training camp preview for it. I gave you a promise. We talk about some TV here. I first want to cover the show Dave on FX, which we talk about almost weekly, it seems like here on the podcast. How good has this season been? Mina Kimes tweeted about it saying how great the show is. And I replied to her saying that my favorite part of the season so far was the scene or the episode where Gata was trying to get his phone charged. And there just was this overwhelming sense of tension and fear that something bad was about to happen to him. But that wasn't the case at all. Spoiler, he winds up being the star of the episode. I went from like, just it's going to happen. Something bad's going to happen to cheering at the end of the episode. Rick and Morty, three episodes into the new season, it's kind of like Dave where it's not that much of a comedy to me anymore as much as a great drama. I'm loving watching that. And my new show I'm into right now is Atlanta, also an FX production. FX makes bangers. But akin to Dave, Donald Glover is so talented. You probably know him as Childish Gambino, the singer, but he does so much stuff with comedy and acting and just the the true triple, quadruple, five-tuple, whatever that word is. He's a true threat in every single aspect. And as promised, my I think you should leave power rankings. I went through every sketch and graded them, or not graded them, I just ranked them in order by which ones I liked the most. I think there's like 28 total. I'm not going to go through all of them, but this show is 98% on Rotten Tomatoes. Seth Rogen called it one of the funniest shows he's ever seen, so I recommend you go check it out because everybody else is, and they're all loving it. Season one was great. I personally think season two is even better. So my top 10, let's go with that. This isn't going to make sense to some of you, but go watch it. You'll find out. Brian's hat slash insider trading, the hat with the safari flaps and the fedora, that was the number one sketch in the entire season for me. Dan Flashes, number two, the great shirts with the complicated designs, that was number two. The Ghost Tour, where you can say whatever you want on the adult tour, was number three. Corncob TV, bring back coffin flops, he didn't do it. Number five was the Crash uh, Detective Crashmore AOL Blast interview, where Santa Claus is playing Detective Crashmore. Sloppy Steaks is number six. I Can't Drive is number seven, when the guy was stuck in the parking lot, couldn't get out because Tim Robinson could not drive his car. Carl Havoc is number eight, the great scene where he questions his entire life because of the sketch they're pulling. And then Driver's Ed was number nine, where the lady and her tables didn't make much sense at all. And number 10 was the Carber Vac, because is that why? Are you sure that's why? You really sure that's why? That's number 10. I got the rest of my rankings here. We'll talk about it on Twitter. Tell me your rankings. Tell me how much you love that show. Tell me what you're watching right now. I love hearing some recommendations and what everybody is doing outside of their football viewing. As for my time on this podcast, part three of the training camp preview is going to be a wrap. You all, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Leave us a rating. Leave us a review. Follow me on Twitter at WingfieldNFL. Follow the team at Miami Dolphins. Check out the Fish Tank and the Audible podcast. And of course, MiamiDolphins.com. Until next time, fins up.